And uh, this is the fourth and final week in our series looking at the Old Testament. So, uh, yeah, it's been, I think it's been helpful even for me just to do this overview again. So I don't know if anybody else has gotten anything out of this, but I've enjoyed it personally. (laughs) Oh, I think you always... I think you find this in lots of areas of life, but whatever you invest into on behalf of others, you reap a personal reward, you know. And so I, just as an encouragement, see so just whatever area of life God calls you to invest into it, because there's a reward that comes by doing that and by being faithful to what God has called you to. And for most of us, it doesn't look like anything up front at church. And that's great. Go and do it, whatever it is that God calls you to, um, do it because there's such an amazing reward that comes from it. And most often the reward is understanding God himself more fully. And uh, that's what I've really tried to communicate and wanted. Um, Like my heart's desire is that you will be able to open up the Old Testament, you know, on a Monday morning or a Tuesday afternoon or sometime just when it's you and God and, and the word and that you can open it up and you read the story of Abraham and it makes a bit more sense than maybe did a month ago. Or you open up about King David and you read about him bringing the ark to Jerusalem and that makes sense for you because you know that he's just captured Jerusalem the city where God has promised that his presence will be. And it makes sense to you that David is fulfilling God's command to bring the ark to Jerusalem. And just little things like that. And so that's really been the goal over these four weeks, is to just give an overview of what the Old Testament is about, to just help piece things together in a way that hopefully is like a jigsaw puzzle, so it all kind of fits. So the one piece of the puzzle you might have might be the life of King Solomon, But hopefully you can put that in and slot that in the puzzle so it makes sense within the bigger picture. So um, can't really do a recap of the last three weeks because we wouldn't actually get to anything today. But but last time we left off, and those of you who weren't here, you're just going to have to trust me on this. But the people... Of, uh, of the kingdom of Judah. Remember, there was the two kingdoms that we saw they split last week after uh, the reign of King Solomon. And we had the northern kingdom, the ten tribes of Israel, the kingdom of Israel, and the southern kingdom, the two tribes of Judah. And both of them were captured. But unlike the northern kingdom of Israel, which was captured a little earlier in history, the southern kingdom of Judah, there was about 10,000 of of the kingdom of Judah that were brought into captivity into the city of Babylon. And they were captured and taken to Babylon by King Nebuchadnezzar. And there they stayed in Babylon for about 70 years. And that's where we left the story last week. So we're going to pick that up in just a moment. But this week is, is the week when we look at that section of the Old Testament called the writings so you might remember the first week i said we're going to follow the traditional uh, jewish way of reading the old testament which is to look at the old testament as three big sections so the first is the law and so we looked at the law first and then the second section is the prophets and last week we looked at the prophets and this week is the final section of the old testament which is called the writings and it's called the writings for a good reason which is because there's a lot of different types of writing in there and there's no real dominant theme other than it's just kind of what's left after you have the law and the prophets. 
And so as we look at it, you'll see there's an assortment of uh, different things in there. So let's just uh, look at what's contained in the writings. And uh, there's lots of different books in there. If you can just go to the next slide, that would be great. Here we go. So as you look at this list of Old Testament books, those of you who maybe are a bit more familiar with the Old Testament, you'll quickly start to realize that there's a, a kind of a, an assortment of books in there. So one thing to note up front is that there's a lot of different types of books in here. They're not all the same type of book. So, for example, you have some history books in there, things that, books that are documenting what's happening in the life of Israel. So the history books would be, for example, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Chronicles. And those really fit together. So Chronicles goes first. And Chronicles really focuses on the kingdom of Judah and the line of David and, and really emphasizes that part of the history of uh, the Old Testament. And then Ezra and Nehemiah follows right after. There's also a type of literature in here that we've not really looked at up to this point, which is wisdom literature. So that would be, for example, the book of Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. There's also books of, in, that are entirely poetry. So, for example, the book of Psalms, Song of Songs, Lamentations. And then there's books that are just really individual stories and that have been captured and recorded for us, how God worked in the lives of individuals. So some of these books, like Chronicles or Kings, they're looking at you know just the life of the nation as a whole. They're very um, big picture. But then we have some books like the book of Ruth or the book of Esther, very personal accounts of people's individual stories and what God did in the lives of these individuals. Um, Daniel would be another book that would fall into that category. So you can see in the writings we have a real collection, and we're not going to look at all of them today, but we're going to look at a couple of different, um, a few different books from the writings just to give you a sample of what they're like and the types of things they contain. Before we jump too much further, though, we need to so we need to get the people out of Babylon back to Jerusalem because historically that's where they've been brought into captivity. They're in Babylon. They're there for about 70 years. You remember at the end of last week we talked about the prophet Ezekiel is prophesying at this time and he's prophesied that they're going to come back out of Babylon and be restored and return to Jerusalem. So, uh, so how does that happen? Well, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah tell this story of how the people come from Babylon back to Jerusalem. And it's a little bit like, I think growing up, I kind of learned this story a little bit like how I learned the story of the people under Joshua's leadership going into the land of Canaan. I kind of thought they just went in, you know, in the land of Canaan and they circled around Jericho, the walls fell down and it was done, right? And you kind of think like, oh, it took like five minutes, you know, and it was done. And uh, it's the, kind of the same idea when they come from Babylon, like, oh, they just all came back in one big group and uh, they rebuilt the walls or something and, and then it was all good and they kind of settled back. But the reality is it took, it took at least three different um, stages of them coming back. There was at least three major phases when they came back to get settled back in the land. And that really makes sense because the Babylonians totally destroyed Jerusalem. It was, it was rubble when they left, and the walls were broken. And most, most alarmingly, and what caused the greatest despair for the people, is that the temple itself was destroyed. And Solomon had built that temple, and it was just this incredible structure. It was 
just laden with gold and just all of these incredibly rich details and treasures of the temple. And the Babylonians came in under Nebuchadnezzar and they just destroyed the temple and they took everything that was valuable and they took it and they brought it into their own storehouses in Babylon. So when the people went back, they had a lot of work to do. And it wasn't like they could just come in and within a few months be ready to go again. And you actually see this as they come back, that they really have to wrestle through what does it mean to be back in Jerusalem? What does it mean to be back into this land again that God had promised way back to Abraham? Remember that story from the first week? Way, way back, God had promised Abraham, this is where you'll be. So the first wave of the people coming back um, from, from Babylon to Jerusalem uh, was, happened like this. So remember the Babylonians come in, 586 B.C., they capture Jerusalem, bring the people in under the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. Well, Nebuchadnezzar was king of the Babylonians. Well, another empire rose up and took over the Babylonians. And you see this happen a lot in Old Testament history, where there's one dominant you know, kingdom, where there's one dominant you know, country, and then somebody else comes in and captures them, and then somebody else comes in and captures them. Well, what you see is God actually strategically using nations to accomplish his will. So God uses individuals, but he also uses nations. So God caused um, the Babylonians to be conquered by uh, the Persians. And so the Persian Empire came in under King Cyrus, and they captured the Babylonians. And God put it in the heart of Cyrus to let the, the, those who were left, called the remnant, those people, he let them go back to Jerusalem. And he did it very early in his reign. So he came in and he said, oh, the 10,000 of you that are here, that, that group had actually grown to at least 20,000 people at this point. In the 70 years, they had really, you know, grown. And so he said, you should go back to Jerusalem. And he said... In fact, don't just go back with nothing. Here are all the treasures of the temple, and here are, here's gold and here's silver. Go back and rebuild. And so that's what they do. And they go back under the leadership of a governor called Zerubbabel. And uh, I think we're more familiar with Ezra and Nehemiah who follow after Zerubbabel. But he was really the first one that went back to help all of this reconstruction begin. And so what they really focused on in this time was rebuilding, not the walls of Jerusalem. That came later. The first thing they did is they reestablished the altar. They reestablished the altar, and they made it so that they could worship God in Jerusalem again. And they made that first. They made that first priority. So they rebuilt the altar, and then they also, in time, rebuilt the temple itself. So last week we looked at the prophets and we said that the prophets, to really understand them, you have to understand them in their context because each of them came with a very particular message for a very particular time in a very particular situation. And we actually see this pattern continuing because there were prophets that God rose up in this time as well in the restoration after the exile in Babylon. And so this is a great example of piecing together how the prophets work to advance the nation of Israel. So I want to kind of slow down for a moment and look at the prophet Haggai and show how he uh, was able to come in and really help in this time in the, in the history of Judah. So if you look at the book of, uh, book of Ezra, chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, talking about the restoration and the work that's going on to rebuild 
in Jerusalem after they come back from Babylon. In Ezra 5, verse 1 and 2, it says, Now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Ido, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Then Zerubbabel son of Shealtiel and Joshua son of Josedach set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. So there you have a historical record of the prophet Haggai and Zechariah coming and helping to encourage the people to finish the temple. So the people have built the altar and they're working on the temple. But by this time that they had stopped working on the temple because they were doing other things. So they had the altar and the temple was kind of getting built, but it was taking a long time and work had really stopped. And, and God really wanted the temple built. He wanted it finished. And so he sends the prophets. Now, if only we had a record of what the prophets had said whenever they came. Well, actually, we do because we have both of the accounts of Haggai and Zechariah towards the end of the Old Testament. They're kind of in that section of prophetic books towards the end of the Old Testament where whenever you have to find one, you're sure that it's lost. And you're like, where did the book of Haggai go? It was in here last time I checked. I'm pretty sure the contents page says it's here somewhere, but I just can't find it. Well, it's in that section of the Old Testament. So so what does Haggai say? Well, I thought we could just kind of listen to the first chapter of Haggai. Because actually, you'll see it ties in directly with what's recorded in the history of Ezra. And so, so here it goes. It's Haggai chapter 1, and uh, it says, In the second year of King Darius, on that first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest. So those names should be familiar because we just read them in, in Ezra. And this is what God says. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come to rebuild the Lord's house. So this is is Haggai kind of reporting to the people. This is what I hear you saying. So people of Jerusalem, what I hear you saying is, oh, it's not time to build God's house. Let's not build the temple. It's not time to build God's house. So Haggai's quoting the people who are saying that. And that's kind of like the word on the street is, it's not time to build God's house. Let's not do that right now. Let's do some other things. So then the word of the Lord in verse 3 came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? And so here you would picture Haggai standing maybe by the, by the temple that's not built. And he says to the people, I hear that you're saying it's not time to build the temple. And so God is saying, really? You're saying it's not time to build the temple, but your own houses are finished? And you're making your own houses really nice? But my house still lies in ruins? So it continues in, in verse 5. Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You've planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build my house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honored, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty. Because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the the earth its crops. 
I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the olive oil, and everything else the ground produces, on people and livestock and all the labor of your hands. So that's the end of what Haggai the prophet speaks to the people. So what was their response? Like what did it achieve? Verse 12, Then Zerubbabel son of Shealtiel and Joshua son of Josadak the high priest and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai the Lord's messenger gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, the spirit of Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. They came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month. So because of the dates at the start and the end of the chapter, that actually took about three to four weeks for Haggai to communicate that message. But eventually, the temple was completed, and that was the end of the first phase of coming back from the land of Babylon. Zechariah also was part of that time. He prophesied the same message at the same time as Haggai, and together they encouraged the people, and they actually worked with the people to rebuild the temple. So the temple has been rebuilt, and the people are trying to figure out what that means, and and they're not really able to, at this point, incorporate the full kind of spectrum of following God. And there's a need for religious reform. There's a need for somebody to come who understands the law to teach the people what it means. Now that the temple and the altar are rebuilt, what it means to follow God as faithful followers of him. And so God raises up Ezra to do this task. So this is the second wave, and we're familiar, more familiar with the name of Ezra maybe than Zerubbabel because he has a book named after him. And so after the temple's been rebuilt, Ezra comes, and Ezra was a priest, and he was a teacher who was very, very familiar with the law of Moses. And he was sent by, um, by uh, the Persian king Artaxerxes, who was, um, you might have heard of the king Xerxes in the story of Esther, and this is a descendant of Xerxes. It's Artaxerxes who was allowed, and he allows Ezra to go back to uh, to to go to Jerusalem and to help the people with their religious reform. So Ezra comes in, and he's really a religious reformer. And the most kind of pivotal moment, or the most kind of famous moment in the book of, or in the life and ministry of Ezra, is he gathers all of the people and he reads the law to them. He gathers them in a public square and he reads the law to them and the people respond. And it's as if they've never even heard the law before. It's as if they're hearing it for the first time and they commit themselves to follow the law. So that's the first two phases. There's rebuilding the altar and the temple under Zerubbabel. There's religious reform under Ezra. And finally, there's social and economic reform under Nehemiah. So often we think that Nehemiah and Ezra arrive at the same time. There's actually a little bit of a a delay, although they ultimately are there at the same time. But Ezra actually is there about 13 years before Nehemiah. So Ezra um, has been there. Nehemiah comes. And uh, he was a a cupbearer to the same king that sent Ezra to Artaxerxes. And he was allowed to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls. And he actually, Nehemiah came in, not as a religious reformer, not as a priest like Ezra, but he came in as a governor. And he comes in and he has the walls rebuilt. But he also spearheads reforms to help the poor and needy. 
He convinced the people not to have mixed marriages, to keep the Sabbath, and to faithfully offer their tithes and offerings. He's governor for about 11 years before he goes back and he serves the Persian king once more. And he's there in Persia again for a period of time. And then eventually he comes back to Jerusalem as governor a second time to help promote reform and to help make sure that things are going well. The prophet Malachi, who's most likely the last prophet in the Old Testament, prophesied around the same time that Nehemiah returns to Jerusalem for the second time because the words of Nehemiah and the concerns that, uh, that Nehemiah have match up very, very closely with those of Malachi. And they kind of speaking the same, the same themes and saying the same things. What are the major themes of this period of Ezra and Nehemiah? Well, together they tell the history of the return to Jerusalem. And that's huge because it was part of God's covenant agreement that the people would always be there, that the people would be there in Judah, that the people would live in the land that had been promised to Abraham. In that way, it speaks of the faithfulness of God and the hope for Israel. It speaks of the importance of covenant. God hadn't given up on covenant despite all this time that had passed. And it also shows the centrality of God moving in history. So that kind of completes the kind of historical part of, uh, of our Old Testament story. And the people are back um, in Jerusalem. And there's historically about 400 years before the New Testament begins. And um, you see that the land, uh, the people who come back, the Jews that come back to the land, come back to Judah, they're kind of, they're, they're never fully independent. Again, they're always kind of, you know, part of a larger empire. And you see that eventually the Romans take over, the Roman Empire takes over this part of the world. Um, when Christ is, is born uh, and the New Testament period begins, they're under Roman occupation. And so um, by the time of Christ, the Persian Empire that we see in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah that's in control, that has become the Roman Empire. And it sets the way. There's 400 years where after Malachi, there's about a 400-year period of time where there's a lot going on in history. It's not like everything stops. But in terms of the biblical record and in terms of what God has preserved for us in the scriptures, there's a period of silence, a period of expectation for the Messiah to come. So very quickly, what are a couple of other um, types of literature or things that are included in the writing? So I just want to talk really briefly about two other um, books. One is the book of Psalms and the other is the book of Proverbs. And these are put into the, uh, into the writings and uh, they're very particular types of, of writing. So the book of Psalms is very well known in the Old Testament. It's maybe the one part of the Old Testament that you, you might like to turn to most often because, you know, it just has lots of encouraging things in there. It's a collection of 150 poems. The entire book is poetry, and it's arranged traditionally into five different books. There are different types of psalms. They're not all the same type of thing. Uh, some are thanksgiving, some are lament, some are used for royal occasions, such as the coronation ceremony of the kings. And many psalms are attributed to King David, but they have been written by many others. For example, Psalm 90. If you turn to Psalm 90, you'll see that it's actually a prayer of Moses. And it starts off, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations before the mountains were born or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. The prayer of Moses recorded in Psalm 90. The Psalms are, are, are prayers, but they're also praises. And they talk about many things in life that are centered around the theme that God is the one true king. So in everything that the Psalms talk about, they really orient themselves around the fact that God is the one true king and that he is to be worshipped. These psalms were associated with the worship 
of the life of Israel as a nation, and they helped guide people as they thought about different issues in life and what it was to worship God. You know, some of the most incredible emotions as it relates to expressing emotion to God, to being very real with God, being vulnerable before God, some of that most picturesque language is in the book of Psalms. I think that's why we're drawn to them so closely, because we feel like there's no barrier or there's no, like, wow, I could never be like this person in the Bible. You know, you read the anguish of David and you say, yep, I can identify with that. You know, David writes words about, you know, how he's trying to deal with sickness or sorrow in his life. And you say, yep, I know a little bit about that myself. And you can use his words to communicate directly to God. Some of the most incredible thoughts on, um, on salvation and grace come through in the book of Psalms. And so I think sometimes in the Old Testament we think, wow, these people must have had a strange view of God. He was giving them this law and all they were concerned about was not mixing fabrics and making sure everything was clean and not unclean. Whereas what you see consistently is they understood, in spite of all of that, the grace and mercy of God. So this theme comes through over and over again in the Old Testament. And some of our most picturesque and just amazing images of forgiveness, grace, salvation actually come from books like the book of Psalms. And that's why we're drawn to them over and over again is because in Paul's writings, he kind of talks about maybe the theology of what it is to be forgiven. Well, in the book of Psalms, it describes it in poetry. And sometimes that can be easier for us to get our minds around. Consider Psalm 103, a Psalm of David. It says, Praise the Lord, my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Okay, so listen to these next few lines. And, you know, we might think this is like a New Testament idea right here but here it is right in the middle of the old testament he forgives all your sins he heals all your diseases he redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles so how did how did david understand that about god I think there's more to the Old Testament than we might think sometimes. God is revealing himself. The book of Proverbs is a collection of sayings given by wise teachers in Israel, including King Solomon, but by others as well. It falls into this collection called wisdom literature. And if there's one place in the Old Testament or one group of writings in the Old Testament where they wrestle through issues of justice and issues of what it is to follow God in a seemingly evil, corrupt, and unjust world, then it's the books of wisdom. So look at the writings of Job or look at the writings of Proverbs. They're wrestling through what it is to follow God in an unjust world where things don't always go right. And I think sometimes the temptation is we read a proverb and we think, oh, it's in the Bible. It must be true. It's for sure going to happen. And sometimes we can pin our hopes on a proverb. The reality is they're to be understood as not so much uh, promises that are going to absolutely come true, but as general principles in life that have been observed to maybe come true more consistently than, you know, more times than they won't. But I just want to make sure that, you know, we're a little bit cautious when we approach the Proverbs, not to just read a proverb and say this absolutely has to come true 100 percent of the time. 
because they're not designed to be written and understood that way. So, for example, Proverbs 10:27 essentially says that the righteous will live a long life, but the wicked will die young. Sometimes that happens. There's a lot of times that doesn't happen. Sometimes the righteous die young and the wicked seem to live long and happy lives. And those are the types of issues that the book of Proverbs, book of Job, and other books in the Old Testament really wrestle through. And so at some point in your life, if you haven't already, you're going to run into issues that the book of Proverbs addresses, issues of injustice, issues of why them and not me, or why me and not them. And so this is, this is the place to go in the Old Testament. So now that we kind of have the big picture, I want to just share, I think we'll have time to do one of these two passages. But let's look at Jeremiah 29, because I think there's, there's the verse in Jeremiah 29:11, and we like to reflect on that verse. We often give it to people whenever they're wanting guidance in life. But now that we kind of understand a little bit more of the historical situation. I want to give you one example of how understanding the bigger picture lets these individual verses, these individual passages come to life a little bit more. So let's read Jeremiah 29. I want to start actually at verse 1 because it will frame it up for us. So this is the text, starting at verse 1. This is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests and the prophets and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Okay, so that hopefully should make sense to you now. That Jeremiah is in Jerusalem. He's just seen the city be devastated and the people carried off to, to Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. And he's writing them a letter because the people are saying, okay, now we're in Babylon. Now what do we do? How do we live? What, what do we do? God promised we live in Jerusalem and now we're not in Jerusalem. How do we live? They're exiles. They're trying to figure out what to do. So let's jump down to verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. God says, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there and do not decrease. Also seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Wow, what a strange thing for God to request of the people that they pray for the prosperity of the people who captured them. Verse 8, yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. So what's happening is there's people who are in exile, who are setting themselves up as prophets among the people that are in Babylon. And they're saying this and they're saying that. And Jeremiah is coming with this letter and saying, no. He's saying, essentially, I'm the true prophet God has sent. Listen to me. Listen to the words of this letter. Verse 10. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and, you, and, and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places 
where I have banished you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. And so those words that we know really well, plans to prosper you, you can see that they're part of this historical promise that God gave to his people, that they would remain in exile no longer. That even though they had gone into this terrible situation, they're captives in a foreign land, that God will bring them back. And so that's not to say it doesn't have principle and application and meaning for us today, but realize the meaning it had originally. Realize where it is in the story of the Old Testament. Realize what it means to the people who heard it first. So as we think about the whole Old Testament, what are some of the themes that come through and what some of its meaning for us today? Well, first of all, it's, it's obvious it's the story of how God deals with, this, with Israel. We can see that it's composed and put together with great detail and incredible structure. It talks about things that are foundational to our lives. It talks about God as creator. It talks about creation. It talks about fall and how we got to, to be where we are in a big picture sense. We hinted at it a little bit earlier with Psalm 103, but there is grace in the Old Testament that comes through, and there is the need for faith. How were people saved in the Old Testament? Was it by keeping the law? No, it was by faith. It was by faith. Why is, why is Abraham the example of what it is to be righteous? Because he believed God. He had faith in God. What was the point of the law? The law trained the people up to show them the extent of sin and fallenness and brokenness, to prepare the way for what was to come in Christ who fulfilled every element of the law. And we can see that by the end of the Old Testament, we really talked about this first week, there's a sense of there's got to be more, there's got to be one who can come and bridge this gap between humanity and God. Because at the end of the day, the history of the Old Testament is the brokenness of sin and the depth of sin and that humanity cannot bridge this relationship back to God and there must be one who comes. It must be a God-ordained act. It must be God himself who bridges the gap. And we see in the New Testament and in Christ that that's what happens. Again, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but as you read the New Testament, just be aware of how much of the Old Testament's in there. And when you see an Old Testament reference, look it up. Find out what it's talking about. And you'll be amazed to see how much is in there. So my challenge to you is, what do you do with the Old Testament? And I'd encourage you to read it and not to get overwhelmed. Just pick small sections. You know, if a whole chapter seems a lot to you, then read three verses. Read five verses. But just take small sections and learn what the small sections are about. And it'll add up quickly where you'll understand what's going on. Commit yourself to just know the bigger picture of the Old Testament. Because when you know the bigger picture, then those smaller sections make a lot more sense. And then finally, super practical point, buy a study Bible. Not so you can intimidate other people with how large your Bible is and the nice leather that it's got on there, even if your name is on the front in gold. Buy a study Bible because all of this stuff is in there. If you're like, I can't remember all the dates and all the names and all the kings and all the places, that's fine. It's all in the study Bible. You open up the first, you know, when you get to Ezra, it says, Day Ezra was written. Why was it written? Who wrote it? What are the themes? And then it'll tell you everything you need to know to put the book in context. It's all in there. And you actually carry it around with you the whole time because it's in your Bible. And you have all of that information at your fingertips. And I would say that's the one easiest thing you can do is if you get a study Bible, all that information's in there. And when you're like, oh, I've got to look something up, 
It's right there. You don't need to go anywhere else. It's right there. So I hope this has been a useful series for you. And I hope that as you read the Old Testament, as you meditate on it, that you're able to piece it together and understand the richness of what God has communicated. So let me just pray real quick, and then I'll hand things over to Bill. Father, we just thank you so much for your word, the richness of what you've communicated in the Old Testament. God, I pray that as we all read, as we all meditate on you and what you've written, you would strengthen us and equip us by your spirit to understand what you have said and what you're saying. In your name we ask it. Amen.